But I think anything that's particularly fast moving, um, where you've got uh, individuals in government having to solve challenges that they're just not very comfortable with yet because there's, there's scant knowledge and a rapidly evolving problem, that tends to be where there's greatest uptake. We discussed about the question of tr- uh, the uh, topic of trust, and it's definitely the major uh, value that should be uh, that should be addressed by uh, by, by the government. Hello, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So today's episode is a slightly left-field topic. It's about the topic of digital government. I think it's good in the podcast to vary the content with some of the more traditional or conventional content around organisations and practitioners and to kind of, you know, spread the uh, gaze a little bit wider. So the topic is what is a digital nation and how can we harness this new potential? And I've got two great guests, Robin Scott, who runs an organisation called Apolitical, and Arno Castignier, who is part of the e-residency programme at the government of uh, Estonia. And we had a fantastic conversation, and you'll hear a little bit more about them in a moment. Uh, One of the things that you might be interested in related to this episode is that we launched something called the Digital Nations Group around about a year ago within the Digital Workplace Group. It operates as a substream within DWG, and the Digital Nations Group is about the acceleration of the digital transformation of nations, works with public and non-profit sectors globally to transform the way their people work digitally. So it's really looking at the uh, sector of governments, NGOs, charities, universities, thinking through about their own digital transformation and the impact that that has on the way they work. The sort of organisations who are part of this include the International Monetary Fund, the European Union, Scottish Government, UK Foreign Office, University of Leicester, uh, UN High Commissioner Refugees. So it's a really interesting range of different organisations. And if you'd like some more information and like to find out a little bit more about it, you can either type into Google Digital Nations Group or you can visit our um, website, Digital Workplace Group, and under membership you'll find Digital Nations Group. So I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm delighted to um, welcome two guests for this um, quite unusual episode of Digital Workplace Impact. Uh, Our topic today is what is a digital nation and and how can we harness the potential um, offered by this new concept? Now, digital nations are something that um, I've been particularly interested in because the Digital Workplace Group launched a new initiative at the UN Um, about 18 months ago now called the Digital Nations Group. And it's really focused on connecting up governments, um, NGOs, uh, not-for-profits around digital transformation of the world of work and the way that that's affecting organisations in different uh, different countries. 
Um, I also have a particular interest in in one of our guests today um, who um, comes to us from Estonia. And that's because I am uh, an e-citizen, a digital citizen of Estonia, which I did as a an act of interest and, and defiance straight after the uh, Brexit referendum. God, two years ago now. So um, and I and I stood outside the Estonian uh, consulate in London and felt uh, uh, digitally uh, kind of better than I did when I went in. So so I'm just going to uh, just introduce. I'm delighted to have you here, uh, Arno um, Castinier. Arno is the head of public relations for the Republic of Estonia's e-residency program. Uh, previously, Arno was the worked for the French president Francois Hollande as a communication officer, and prior to that, he worked uh, in, in as an internal communications consultant in in Paris, advising governments, politicians, corporations, and as a business journalist in Istanbul and Mumbai. Um, he's a board member of Open Diplomacy, a Paris-based think tank and is a member of the Young Transatlantic Network of Future Leaders, a, a flagship initiative of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, specifically geared towards professionals um, 35 years or uh, younger. Um, and it's great to have you with us today, Arno. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yes. And uh, my, my other guest is Robin Scott. Um Robin's a fascinating person. She's the co-founder and CEO of Apolitical. Uh, what is Apolitical? Well, it's a global network for governments uh, helping public ser servants around the world in 120 plus countries find ideas, people and partners to solve the hardest challenges facing our societies. Um, previously, Robin was a co-founder of OneLeap, a London-based executive education company, and Level Up, which teaches coding to vulnerable young people in South Africa. She's written an acclaimed memoir about growing up in Botswana, um, which is amazing to do at, um, at a young age to write a, a memoir. Congratulations on that. And she's an ambassador for the Access to Medicine Index, um, an advisor to the Responsible Mining Index, a World Economic Forum young global leader and Gates Scholar. And she's got a BSc in bioinformatics from Auckland and a, a, a master's in bioscience enterprise from Cambridge University. So it's fantastic to have you both here. And 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 I suppose one one thing that strikes me listening to or reading out both of your bios is that you're both young um, leaders with real momentum. Um, I, I suppose I'm going to start off by asking you, Arno, when did you s sort of see yourself or, or feel you had, if you like, le leadership capability in your in your field? Oh, I think it's, uh, well, that's a very uh, interesting question because I, uh, I I can't see any uh, specific moment when I uh, when I realize this, or and it's uh, it's an everyday uh, improvement. So I'm always working on this. Uh, you know, I'm um, a residency program often describes itself as a government startup, and I would say that uh, I have the same kind of mindset. So it's always uh, even in terms of leadership, uh, there's always room for improvement uh, at a personal level, that uh, even as a team as well. And uh, so I always I learn every day based on the all of the interaction I have with uh, stakeholders or innovators uh, like Robin, for instance. Mm. 
Fantastic. And and Robin, I mean, being um, seen as a young global leader, has that helped you in in your work and the and the projects that you're involved in? Yeah, it's been fantastically useful. Um, some of my dearest friends and uh, the most inspirational people in my life come from that group. Um, I think where it's most helpful is whenever you embark on something hard yourself, um, which what we're doing certainly is, it's challenging um, and enormous in its ambition. You can get very bogged down in the challenges you're facing and there's nothing like having um, intravenous access to a group of people who are um, doing equally difficult, if not harder things, to make you pull up your socks and say, well, at least I'm not facing that problem. So I find it um, it, it particularly good for uh, finding a bird's eye view and putting things into perspective. And yeah, and, and that's and it's so interesting, isn't it? Because there's that uh, phrase that we are the sort of uh, average of the five people we spend most time with. Uh, which I think is very true, was so affected by the environment. And, you know, when you meet other people who are also ambitious and trying to do things, it, it encourages you. Uh, I mean, it strikes me from what you just said, Arno, that, that seeing the uh, Estonia e-residency program as a startup is, is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, could you just, for people who aren't familiar with what Estonia's done. Just describe the e-residency and, 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 and also why why do you see that as a startup? Yeah. So um so e-residency program has been uh, has been launched in December twenty fourteen. Uh it came from a very um both unique but very simple idea, which is why should a country only offer its services to its own population and not also to Anyone from anywhere in the world that could benefit from this uh, from these services. So concretely, um, it's a transnational digital ID accessible to anyone from anywhere in the world, which gives access to Estonian services without actually coming to Estonia. So people can, as any Estonian citizen, people from all over the world can access the services. And the main motivation, as we saw, is to create a company. So. Um, it's uh, it's very um, when I describe we describe it as a government startup because of course we are we're always evolving in the way uh, in the way we um, we build the program uh, how we want the program to uh, to be in the future uh, but I mean in the governmental startup uh, part I mean the the government part is very important as well because of course uh, we do it for Eastern people we do it for the citizens because we want. To build the revenues of the future for the for the country, and at the same time it gives a um, a global message for for Estonia and for the uh, for the rest of the world. So uh, yeah, we show that the country doesn't have to choose between um, being uh, open, opening its borders to the rest of the world, uh, at least digitally, or providing uh, wealth to its population. It's because we are open that we can uh, increase the revenues uh, and the wealth of our population. Mm, that, that's great. And, and Robin, just in the same way, perhaps you could just um, explain what Apolitical does, because, again, um, it strikes me that as an organisation, it's a, um, if I say innovative, but it, it's something that the, it, it, it's hard to compare with something else. So perhaps you could just explain um, how you see the organisation. Um, absolutely. And I think it's more fun to work on stuff that's hard to directly compare with um, anything else. So just a little bit of context. I mean, we live at a time when 
problems are you know, evidently only getting more global, complex and fast moving, where government, um, whatever your view of government, some people love it, some people hate it, is a critical actor in solving these challenges in different ways. Um, and yet where the people working in government, um, in many countries, the largest workforce, are faced with using, you know, at best 1990s solutions to solve problems um, and at worst um, sort of 20th century solutions. And it, it struck my co-founder and I, um, who incidentally I met through the Young Global Leaders Program you mentioned, as crazy that, you know, a traveler could find out about lumps on a mattress on the other side of the world, but a public servant couldn't quickly find out about known lumps in a policy on the other side of the world, when the stakes are so high, you know, affect millions of lives, cost millions of taxpayer dollars. And as a result, we have all this duplication um, and reinvention of the wheel and often avoidable failures at such high cost to society. So we wanted to create a, a platform harnessing technology, harnessing AI to make that process of finding the best solutions much more efficient. So what the platform does now is if you're a, a public servant or policymaker, you can quickly find inspiring ideas from around the world, the best evidence behind those ideas on the big challenges of our time. And then critically, you can reach out through the network to the people who've actually worked on issues, because that's one of the big gaps in policy. Often it's not just about the idea, it's about how on earth do you implement this and make this work against real world challenges. So we brought together um, information and networks to help speed up the process of doing what's working. Um, mm-hmm. So just just to give you know one example, um, you know, a question we hear all the time is how do how do I regulate autonomous vehicles as a as a public servant? Um, it's a very hot button issue. It's being tried in different forms all over the world and it's crazy that there's not an easy way to speak to the people who try it in different places right no and and uh, that's a that's a, a great example and you've got different um entities different countries all all grappling with a, a similar question and you know there's a, there's always that tendency to work in isolation i suppose kind of when i li- when i think about what estonia is doing and also when i think what about um, what apolitical is doing. I wonder whether this is um, an illustration um, that we need to have a more elastic view of of the nation or government, or is the idea that the nation state has sort of reached its sell by date um, coming of age, or or is that a, 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 in a way too black and white a way of putting it? Because there is quite a lot of debate about the enduring value of a nation state and and i wonder whether uh, perhaps starting with you robin whether you whether you feel the nation state has has kind of run its course or is or you know in a hundred years time are we still going to have the the these this this concept uh it's such a tricky question and i think uh i personally think it's too early to call time on the nation state I would err more towards um, the position you set out around flexibility. Um, Mm. Clearly, there are problems that the world is facing which benefit more from um, transnational collaboration structures. For example, something like uh, 
regulating um, AI and the ethics around AI, where there are pockets of initiatives in different countries and cities, that is going to be much more effective if it happens um, across borders as well. On the other end of the spectrum, clearly a lot of things are better done at the level of cities, and we've seen some of the most interesting innovation happen at city level, sometimes the state level. But to argue the flip side, we've got issues like how do we um, how do we provide basic support structures for people who've lost their jobs in huge volumes to technological disruption? Um, you know, I'm still I'm still uncertain as to whether I'm fully behind universal basic in- income as a concept, but I think it's one of the most um, important concepts we need to be trialing and exploring at the moment, and it will probably evolve and the nation state is still best positioned to execute on that. Um, so it's, it's I, I'd summarize by saying um, horses for courses, but we do need more flexibility. Mm. And, and Arno, what's your feeling on, on this, this question of the, uh, the viable future for the nation state? Well, I, uh, I definitely believe the concept of nation state is, uh, of course, it's totally, it's still totally relevant. I mean, nations still exist. Uh, states still exist, and um, and the uh, nations and nation states must find ways to uh, serve the population, serve the citizens, and better serve them. Uh, which is why we also see that nation states are evolving as well. Uh, I mean, they've been they always starting to evolve in the past in order to uh, to serve the diaspora. Uh, so just to give you an example, with, uh, in, in Estonia, the use of our digital ID card allows the state to serve in the same way uh, as some people living in Estonia and um, and as some people living abroad. But then, um, given that now we're facing, of course, we're facing disruptions, we're facing a lot of uh, new uh, new changes. Uh, we believe that um, a new kind of contract that could be a bit freer, a new, freer, a new kind of contract is needed between state and citizens. Uh, we can even talk about new social contract um, with a freedom to switch as well, should an individual choose to do so. Uh, because nowadays uh, we've got the mobility of the labor force that is only increasing. So the rigid system of just a single home or host state looking after an individual from birth to pension age is kind of uh, obsolete. So uh, we believe that the concept of um, nation state is still going to exist, of course. Uh, however, we believe that the uh, nation states are going to transform themselves into something more agile, more pre- flexible, that can also address the, uh, the evolution of the question of identity, because uh, now that you have global citizens, you need also uh, inclusive identities and identities that add to each other. So you're not only... Uh, you don't only relate to one single uh, nation and one single state. So we believe that it's a normal, normal evolution, uh, but uh, we definitely, I'm pretty sure that the concept of nation state in itself, even if it's going to evolve, but it's still going to be the most uh, relevant one. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, the one, um, the one thing that I think is very unhelpful right now is this idea that it's, it's a bit zero sum. It's either the global citizen or... Um, the citizen, and that those two concepts are at odds with each other. I think we need to be able to embrace them both and um, use each of them for what where they're most powerful. Mm. No, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And one of the concepts that I 
I, I feel increasingly is relevant. And, and we talk about hyper-local, hyper-local and hyper-global. But what's interesting to me is that at, at a local level, if it's in a community or a school or a hospital or whatever, um, having power devolved to that level really works. But local depends on where, you're, where what your perspective is. So you could see um, a nation state or a region within a nation as part of local. Um, um, and, and I think in a way what it strikes me you're doing, Robin, with, with apolitical is, is creating a, a means for um, challenges to have access to knowledge wherever they are. Um, and, and I just wondered if you could give um, uh, some examples maybe of where you've... Has there been particular uh, take-up more in, in, in one particular sector, whether it's in healthcare or you mentioned um, vehicles? And, and also, has there been more take-up from any particular um, uh, geographies than others? I think anything that's particularly fast moving, um, where you've got uh, individuals in government having to solve challenges that they're just not very comfortable with yet because there's, there's scant knowledge and a rapidly evolving problem, that tends to be where there's greatest uptake. So that, um, that spans digital. We have a ton of interest amongst our users in what Estonia, for example, has done and the other leading countries in digital. You know, um, a, a almost perennial problem is people trying to convince their own department to digitize their data, get it off old servers and put it in the cloud and build a business case for that. And of course, people doing that will turn to the leaders in the field like Estonia. So it's these, the, I mentioned um, autonomous vehicles is another example of something fast moving. But then around the refugee crisis, we also see a lot of need. Suddenly you've got cities and countries which have never had to cope with integrating hundreds and thousands of refugees having to grapple um, with that challenge and looking for best practice that that helps you navigate this hugely um, practical practically difficult and politically difficult situation um, mm. so a, a bunch of stuff around that um, geographically there, there are certainly hot spots um, you know the usual suspects the governments that tend to be more open and share um, are embracing it with alacrity, say Canada, for example, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, a lot in Scandinavia. But we also see some really interesting and exciting uptake in emerging markets um, uh, where there's super fascinating innovation happening. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this idea of leapfrog innovation um, from emerging markets. We've seen it in technology, solar, mobile phones, et cetera. The same thing is happening in policy because where you don't have a po existing policy infrastructure, often things can be done that much faster. So we're seeing some really incredible people and cool ideas coming out of uh, Latin American countries, for example. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, when we're thinking about this um topic of the digital nation because it um, and I don't know if it's a term that you kind of like or don't like um, <clears throat> but it, it it's in a way it sort of says there's a physical nation and there's a digital nation and, and Estonia is obviously the kind of leading example of this but it's true for any country um, you know there's around about 200 countries in the world and and each of them has a physical 
nation and a digital nation. But I wonder when we start to think about the digital nation, um, and one of the reasons why we started this initiative around the Digital Nations Group was was that actually what you can do digitally, um, free from the if you like the limitations of gravity, is is so dramatically different that you can connect. Um, different people up in a way that was is is physically impossible and i just wonder arno um what what has been the sort of main um benefits that you think what the digital estonia has has been able to realize um i mean obviously it's it's made a big impact for estonia um which is fantastic but are there what well, i suppose what are the most um impressive examples do you think of where you've you've really shown the power of a digital nation well there are several several things so first of all uh well development of the Eastern digital society really allowed the country to uh, to become more efficient we allowed the country to save a lot of time money and better serve the citizens um you know it's, it's something that um uh, last year at the digital summit um i remember i was with my managing director and we had a discussion with a uh, greek prime minister tsipras and when we explained to him that, um, you know, in, in Estonia, we only use um, digital signature and it allows the country to save the equivalent of 2% of its GDP each year only by using this digital signature. When we told him this, he say, what he told us was, his reply was, OK, why didn't the EU tell us, tell the Greek government to implement this kind of, this kind of uh, solutions? Because uh, instead of just asking to reduce the wages, uh, etc. So, uh, so we really believe in Estonia that uh, the fact that we have a digital uh, society uh, really help us to, uh, to better serve our citizens. Regarding the e-residency program, which is actually not a technological innovation at all, it's just a change in innovation in the mindset, because concretely we just give the, the access to an infrastructure that already exists for Estonians. But uh, the idea of opening it to the rest of the world, no matter where people are from, this uh, was very, uh, very, uh, was a game changer. So thanks to e-residency, we, we really democratized access to entrepreneurship because we, we stand for equal access to opportunities worldwide. And, uh, you know, when you become a resident, no matter where you're from, you can create a company, access uh, financial tools business banking services, uh, access the, uh, the European uh, single market, and uh, we basically we bridge some people to the global, uh, to the global economy, to the European uh, market, thanks to e-residency. On our side, it's also allow us to make our country bigger and stronger, because we strongly believe that it's because of uh, our openness and inclusiveness that we're going to build a better future for Western people, and we also believe that the states uh, are going to uh, to uh, to involve. So so far, the residency program allowed to generate a lot of revenues in Estonia, of course, um, but it also allowed us to uh, build partnership with uh, with other institutions and other countries around the world. For instance, we partnered with uh, with the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development for an initiative named E-Trade for All, in which we're helping uh, individuals around the world to do uh, e-commerce. And we have a pilot project right now in India in which we're helping uh, female entrepreneurs in Delhi to do, uh, to do e-commerce. So it really, um, it really solved many problems uh, faced by entrepreneurs, freelancers, digital nomads around the world, like concrete problems like access to financial tools like PayPal, business banking services, capital, etc. And uh, at the same time, it really helps a small country like Estonia 
to punch way above its weight. Uh, and uh, you know, in the future, the uh, the um, the relevance of nations uh, are not only going to be based on the on the power, how many inhabitants you have, and uh, and all this. We really believe that uh, it's how um, that nations are going to matter and succeed in the future will be determined by the ability to attract and empower individuals and build a community, not in a coercive way, but thanks to our power. And this is uh, the fantastic thing we see from e-residents, is that, um, you know, when they, um, when they become e-residents, um, actually many of them at some point want to know more about Estonia after they discover the country thanks to e-residency. Some of them learn the language, others want to physically move here, and most of them become the best promoter of the country. So it really helps us to... Uh, to, uh, to to build a larger community of individuals that share some things in common and uh, an e-residency become one part of their personal identity, but it doesn't replace their national identity, of course. Yeah, and that's um, yeah certainly been part of my experience. You know, after I became a, an e-citizen, I found myself you know talking about it and if you like evangelizing about it and. You know, and, and it always provoked interesting conversations because people try and get their head around the concept and what does that mean? Um, one of the things that struck me from what you were saying, Arno, that I'd like your view on, Robin, is that, is that it does strike me that this type of initiative, both Estonia, what you're doing, and this concept of the digital nation is, is as much about efficiency and improving efficiency because you taught the story about you know it's easy to find out you know uh, the quality of mattresses on TripAdvisor but you can't find out things to do with um, you know the spread of malaria or vaccines etc etc and 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 so uh, in a way by connecting um, ideas information data you're 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 improving efficiency the efficiency of the world really yeah, I think efficiency is is the baseline objective, increasing it. But um, I do also think there's a loftier part to it, which is also showing what can be done. Um, and it's something that in the entrepreneurial sector we're very good at. We're very good at showing and um, celebrating people who take risks, companies who take risks and boldness. And we haven't really had platforms that show the possible and celebrate the possible as much in the public sector. And I think that's um, really important to do, to stretch people's thinking, to encourage smart risks, as opposed to just letting them find what's already working. Um, and Estonia is an amazing example of that uh, and, and rightly put on a pedestal for all its pioneering work in digital. Just briefly taking a, a slightly different tack, I want to mention something because it, it um, worries me slightly in the obsession with digital in the um, terminology. And I see an analogy in smart cities where smarts, the whole idea of a smart city was initially very based around uh, um, internet of things, devices and sensors could solve everything. And they were sort of fetishized. And it's evolved much more to being about how do we serve um, people better and put people at the center of cities, mm -hmm. which I think is where it needs to be. And there's a parallel with digital Obviously, digital is the simplest way to describe this, but it's ultimately the medium and not the value. And I think what sometimes gets neglected in the discourse is that starting point. I mean, I know mentioned openness being 
absolutely critical to this. And I wish that we talked about it more in terms of that aspect of it. This is about connecting people to each other, about building transparent, open societies that will have X, Y, Z benefits. Um, it's about being able to foster trust. And I think trust is especially interesting because it's one of the uh, it's one of the elements that you need for a digital society to work well, which is becoming greatly under pressure at the moment and very fragmented and has possibly been neglected because we focus so much on the medium and not the value. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with this. And it's uh, it's something we often face when we deal with, uh, with journalists or stakeholders. They ask us a lot of questions about technology like uh, blockchain, etc. And what we always try to explain is that, uh, I mean, regarding blockchain, for instance, yes, it's a fact, the world is becoming more decentralized. Um, however, I mean, the, we must not be overly optimistic about the capacity of technological innovation and so on to change the course of history, because you always need a purpose, you need values, and you need a vision. So um, blockchain and other kind of technology are the tools uh, that we can use. But uh, yeah, innovation in itself is just meaningless without uh, without a purpose. And in our case, it's clearly to save the to serve the citizens better. When when we are asked to define uh, e-residency program in uh, in just a couple of words, um, showcasing the, the values of the program, uh, we always explain that first the program is inclusive, uh, so every person on earth is legitimate to apply for e-residency. We explain that it's empowering. Uh, because we provide the same access to opportunities, tools to for anyone to succeed uh, as an entrepreneur. We explain that it's legitimacy because we are part of a government, and we also explain that it's fully transparent. And uh, the government of, of Estonia is built upon a solid foundation of transparency, uh, with personal privacy and data integrity taken very seriously. And this is extremely, extremely important because... Uh, both innovation and digital can be uh, are not necessarily positive things. You can do very, uh, very dangerous things uh, in this. And actually, if with all of what you see from uh, innovation, like Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and all this, this is all part of the same industrial revolution. But it must always be, from a governmental point of view, it must always be uh, driven by uh, values, purpose. And we believe that uh, inclusiveness and openness should be, together with transparency, uh, the main values uh, for, for governments to, to address this new revolution. Yeah, and, it, and it's really um, in, encouraging and inspiring what you're, what you're both saying. I mean, I, I do feel that we're at a very early stage in this digital um, technological revolution. And, and we, we sort of perhaps inevitably, like adolescents, kind of faced with um, uh, you know new toys think that it can do everything it's going to be incredible but actually and you can see with the whole um, thing that's been happening this year with social media and with politics and with Facebook it feels to me like this is all part of the maturing of us starting to kind of understand that the tool on its own is not going to um, resolve everything in fact it's going to create uh, issues and unless we start to um, bring those up against what kind of world do we want to create? What are the values that we're trying to promote? Um, and one of the kind of um, concepts that I think is um, really uh, important where the technology does allow something is that if you think of the, the, the 
kind of global challenges that we face that you know you you mentioned at the beginning robin you you might think well the kind of solution to this is some sort of world government because you know what you do is you 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 sort of go up in a hierarchy and a, and then you have one overarching body um but actually what strikes me is emerging and what i think both of your examples show is a really an alternative concept which is about shared networks platforms platforms of trust um and, and and my experience of being an uh, an e-citizen of Estonia is is the trust comes because I trust the Estonian government. I don't know much about it, but I just trust it. Um, and and so therefore you kind of are happy to pass over your details and your 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 your, your data and and be part of this. But also you understand or um, the feeling is of, of being part of a network. Um, and I, I I think we're we're shifting to a a networked um world and to, at the moment it feels to me like certain kind of um uh kind of capabilities in the world are located far too much in 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 an individual why do we give so much power to particular you know presidents or uh, prime ministers you know in a way it, it, it's it, it it the the responsibility should be far more um networked but but um Robin, do you have any particular views on 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 what role government is is going to play in the in the coming years and decades? Is it is it is it got a um, a particular as this network, if you like, evolves? Uh, is the role for government going to to evolve, and and how might that be? Well, the framework I find most helpful is this idea of government as a platform. Not so much a platform in the technology sense of platform, but in the enabling sense. And I think the challenge for government is constantly reevaluating what is the necessary level of input and governance to optimally operate as a platform. So clearly, for example, if you take go back in time, roads are a, a fantastic example of what government should put in place as a, as a huge enabling infrastructure. Um, and we've seen similar things with the um, digital revolution and internet infrastructure. And I think increasingly there are going to be questions around the platform in terms of the rule of law, new necessary regulations, but not unduly burdensome regulations. And also um, building a platform in terms of trust. I think one of the, we already touched on this, but one of the big issues and challenges right now is, is a lack of trust and government needs to find, figure out what it can do to shore up trust because that is an enabler of so many other things of a high functioning um, business sector, um, just as, as one example. Uh, and I, I sometimes, again, I think when we talk of this idea of platform, tech gets overemphasized. I think trust, not technology, is is in many cases the original and most important platform that um, government can help contribute to. And I think at the same time as that, so figuring out the optimal level of, of intervention and operations from a government perspective is the need for government to build more flexibility into itself. Because we don't, the reality is we don't know the problems that we'll be faced in 10 years. Um, but we do know that we'll need to get faster at dealing with them. 
and finding a way to be faster and more flexible is going to be critical either way. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering whether, um, and it's a, it's a difficult, probably impossible question to answer, that in this kind of vision or picture that you're describing, Robin, whether we need a different kinds of politicians because the kind of things that might have motivated somebody to come into politics you know 30 or 40 years ago in in this in the 21st century are going to be quite different and it's quite interesting in the UK to watch um, you know while while sort of Brexit's kind of rolling along or whatever it's doing the, the the kind of increasing power of mayors local mayors city mayors devolved government devolved activity um, because I think that is a level where government or local government is is has um, is able to build trust by taking on particular projects. They can be infrastructure projects. I remember um, watching a, a program all about Colombia and the changes that have happened in Colombia since it was, you know, so kind of torn apart by drugs and violence. And and there was a particular city and they were saying that <clears throat> actually what people didn't want was was sort of a general kind of wash of of change. What they wanted was a, a better route to getting from the top of a particular hill into where into the area where they worked, and you know the tram system that would allow that. That's where um, they were. That's how they were rebuilding trust in 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 government. Um, so I think it's, um, I mean, do you think, I mean, because we, you know, we are on digital workplace impact, so I'm particularly interested in the implications for work. Um, what what are some of the changes do you feel, uh, Arno, uh, when you're looking at the idea of, of um, uh, e-residency and, and e-citizens? What, what What's this likely, the likely impact of this to be on work? Yeah, it definitely affects this because uh, well, e-residency is particularly suitable for for digital nomads, freelancers. So uh, by offering e-residency, we also address the fact that uh, we we are aware we are aware that uh, work, the way people work is going to evolve a lot. So the relation between a state and uh, citizens or residents, e-residents, etc., is going to evolve as well in order to adapt and to cope. With the people's new expectations, habits, and um, and uh, and all of this, so it definitely impacts uh, impact the way we address the the future of work. Um, again, and um, it's um, it's also the question of uh, of values that is extremely important. I mean, we we discussed about the question of tr- uh, the uh, topic of trust is definitely the major uh, value that should be uh, that should be addressed by uh, by by the government. Um, you know, in Estonia, each citizen or resident or e-resident knows exactly which administration has checked its personal data and why. And um, you know, we can only de- design a digital society or innovate or innovative programs like e-residency can all- only be attractive if there's trust and accountability between the people, state authorities, and private enterprises. And building trust has actually nothing to do with technical solution or only very little to do with this, but has a great deal to do with mindsets and uh, and culture. It's much more difficult and time-consuming than creating technical solutions. Uh, it means a lot of everyday work. So everybody must be uh, must be on board, everybody must be involved, whether it's the administration, the government, the citizens as well. 
But uh, it makes us go back to the question of uh, building networks, building community, and um, and we believe that governments can be the drivers of all these changes. Only if they embrace agile governance, if they change their the current approach to public engagement and policy making, but also if they work together with uh, with the stakeholders, including the citizens. Uh, to uh, to develop a comprehensive view of all these uh, these uh, changes and how they're going to affect our our lives because yeah, in the end it all comes down to people and values. Mm. Yeah, and and um, uh, Robin, I mean, you mentioned that you 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 saw government as more of a platform, and I, I'm just wondering, do do you have a kind of view of the kind of people then um, in the future who'll be attracted to um, working government? Um, and and uh, what effect this might have on, if you like, political uh, ambition? Well, our, our hope um, and one of the things we're trying to foster at Apolitical is um, a different reputation for government. Right now it's seen often wrongly as um, more bureaucratic than it is and um, more behind than it is. And there's certainly um, elements of that, but there's also incredible things happening in government. And I think as a consequence of this um, faulty narrative, government often loses out on really talented people. And I think if things go well and government gets a bit better at communicating this, then we'll start to see more people seeing and particularly millennials choosing government as a way to make a really important impact on the world not for um not forever but for a time and there's there's some interesting data on how it's not now seen as a way to change the world social enterprises are seen as the way to do that which is neglecting this hugely powerful lever for change so making it clearer that it is an incredibly important um and powerful way to have an impact i think is very critical um in general, there needs to be more movement between government and other sectors. Some of the consistently, some of the most successful innovators you see in government are people who have come from different backgrounds and who are faced with a situation where someone says that can't be done or it's always been done this way and say, no, that's ridiculous. Um, it uh, it can be done a different way. So, so that and everyone... Everyone in leadership roles in government, uh, for, for the most part, recognises the importance of that diversity of perspective. At the same time, I think the world is a lot better if um, there's more awareness of the importance of government in other sectors. One of the the interesting um, experiences for me, I've never worked in government before in starting this organisation, is how humbling it is to realise how hard it is to get things done in government when you've got a multiplicity of stakeholders and such a complex environment. And I've lost track of the number of senior um, executives in the private sector who've gone and done a stint in government and have been similarly shocked by um, the very real nature of that challenge, whereas previously they'd taken a more kind of condescending position that government can't do anything. Um, so, so more in some more flux and more movement um, and flow between different sectors is super important. Mm. I mean, I must say, I spend an awful lot of time dealing with a lot of organisations, both um, large corporate organisations and and uh, governments, parliaments, NGOs, and it strikes me that they all kind of 
um, gravitate towards a level of bureaucracy. And I don't know if it's just simply due to size or or pattern or the fact that they don't really perceive uh, an uh, an alternative. And and so I I don't think that the issues that affect um, governments, from what I've seen, are are that different to to the ones that affect you know many kind of large entities. And it's 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 I think um, partly a a cultural habitual thing, but it's also about um, seeing how to function. Um, uh, differently, which I think is is um, is really interesting. I'm just kind of curious, Robin. I mean, you you, what on earth made you think that the the sector that you were going to um, uh, try and kind of unlock and tackle was going to be government? Because frankly, you could have put this to to uh, in, into a whole number of of, of private activities and and commercialize things and i'm sure you had no shortage of other great ideas but you you must have had a particular kind of mindset to think well we're going to try and crack government uh well one of the consequences of growing up in a very small country in my case botswana is you uh your orientation is constantly to look outwards and look at the rest of the world and look at how problems um are interconnected with each other and that's so, so that's been um, the lens through which I've always viewed the world. I'm interested in things that work at the systems level. Um, and one of the one of the pieces of work I'd done before starting apolitical was in co-founding um, a, a nonprofit in South Africa which teaches coding in prisons. I got to experience a lot of policy failures. Prisons are a petri dish for where policy fails because people often end up there because mental health didn't work, early childhood education didn't work, uh, and so on and so forth. And I got very frustrated with seeing all these problems at the downstream end, at the level of consequences rather than causes. So when, with both that in mind and my love of technology, I'm a geek at heart, and my interest in global perspectives. When I started looking for my next venture, I got fascinated by the government space because it, you know, it's this enormous power in the world that has been so underserved by technology and entrepreneurship, partly because I think the narrative amongst entrepreneurs is that government is impossible to work with. So very few people um, embark on ventures that uh, that interact with government. And to me that seemed like an opportunity. It made it harder to get started, and we had um, you know, a big challenge when we began convincing people that anyone in government would want this or use it. But it's made it much more rewarding as we get going because the, the scope to make a difference is so uh, huge and obvious. And I think you know, coming back to your earlier point about apolitical being um, hard to describe, that's because we are – bringing together a lot of different ideas in a new vehicle. And that's a really, really fun place to be. As an, as an entrepreneur, I think you you put yourself through enormous challenges, whatever company you're starting. And you commit a huge chunk of your life, whatever company you're starting. And I take the view that you might as well have your very best shot at doing the most meaningful thing you can. And to me, it seems obvious that um, that's that, that the government is 
an opportunity for that. Mm. Yeah, and as a, as a conversation, I've noticed that I, I'm having more frequently with 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 people, which is that you know we we seem to be able to see so many situations where things actually do work. Um, it can be a particular train service, it can be a particular school, particular hospital. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there's there's a whole host of things where things actually work, and and it almost feels that at, at a kind of global level. We, we, we sort of have the solutions available to do a much, much better job than we're currently doing. But actually, the problem is that those things are not joined up. They're not shared or they're not shared in a way that's effective. And I do think that is where technology um, does open up differences. I mean, if you think about um, our understanding of the challenges that we face, it's it's unprecedented. You know, if you go back um, 30 or 40 years and certainly a couple of hundred years, our, our, our kind of understanding of what else was happening on our planet was, was so, so limited. So uh, it, it does strike me that these these networks and platforms are really creating, um, in a way, the, the kind of means to do uh, to, to bring local solutions to a much um, wider, wider group. Um, and I'm interested to know, Arno, you know, if somebody's going to become a, uh, an e-citizen of Estonia, is there any reason why becoming an e-citizen of another country would need you to go through a, a, a different kind of uh, sort of subscription process? And, you know, that, so that if you're, a, you know, as an e-citizen of one particular country, uh, could you not be an e-citizen of multiple different countries on the same basis? And, and is that something that that uh, Estonia has thought of, if you like, ex exporting? Mm. Um, so, um, so the uh, the name of the uh, of the program is e residency, which is slightly different from uh, from citizenship because yeah, we sorry sorry I've been misquoting it the whole program. Yeah, no, but yeah. it's fine. I mean, it's, it gave me the opportunity to explain why we. Uh, why we uh, we're not called uh, e-citizenship is that we don't ask people to change their citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to give them the advantages of uh, the same advantages of being a resident in another country, accessing opportunities, community, etc. But we don't ask people to change their, their citizenship. We, we don't uh, we don't want to come in, in any conflict with uh, the person's. Um, identity or its national identity, etc. So, uh, but what we see is that um, actually um, uh, people could in the future uh, become irresident of multiple states because uh, you might want to use services from one country. You might um, you might see that some other countries are more efficient on certain services, etc. And uh, it doesn't make you like a, a bad citizen or or, or anything. It's just that. Uh, given that you you're global citizen, so you can have global identities as well, and identities from different uh, different countries. So uh, we strongly believe that uh, other residency programs are going to be created in other countries around the world, and we're not going to ask people to choose between the nationality, the citizenship, the residency, and, uh, and we don't ask them to uh, to be on the. Uh, it's not a question of being faithful or, or anything. People can um, freely choose. Uh, which services they want to they want to use, and people must be free. Um, free they must be free to decide also which um, 
which uh, country can attract them based on which values, based on which services, products, and, and, and all of this. So uh, now we don't see it as um, coming in conflict of a uh, question of citizenship, and we believe that people can have multiple uh, identities, and personal identities actually, uh, in general, are based on many factors. Uh, the citizenship is one of them, but uh, the ideas, the values, the experience are other, uh, other part of what builds a personal identity. Mm, great. And, and Robin, uh, do you have any particular views on on how um, some of the changes that we've been talking about might um, impact the corporate world? Because we have a lot of people from a lot of uh, large organizations who tune tune into the uh, to the show. Um, are there implications for the corporate world? Well, I think there's there there are many um, direct and indirect. Uh, an example, obviously, the indirect ones are you know government becoming okay with technological disruption and quicker adapting to obviously has huge benefits from a legislative perspective. So there's not there's there's um, adequate but not excessive regulation, um, which is very important to uh, certainty in the business world amongst other things. The, the one of the direct consequences is around procurement, and we find this particularly interesting. Your government procurement is enormous. It's you know the figures around seven trillion dollars a year by some estimates, um, and right now that procurement tends to be dominated by the very largest companies, and it tends to be very much about just providing services rather than thinking of procurement more expansively in terms of how it can additionally benefit society, a kind of double bottom line lens on procurement. So I think there's enormous potential around um, using technology and accelerating best practice to help democratize access to procurement for better providers offering more cost-effective citizen-centric technologies often through the vehicle of companies that might be the kind of companies that government wants to invest in because they're innovative, mid-sized and young companies or because they're companies that have exceedingly good supply chains um, that uh, abide by values that we as a society want to foster. So the, the, the um, transparency, open data movements and imperative in government to do more with less, all of these factors are driving us towards reevaluating how procurement works. And I see that as uh, an enormous positive um, opportunity that, that opens, um, opens up possibilities for a lot of companies who could but don't sell into government. Mm. I mean, and, you know, as we come to, to a close, it does strike me that this is really you know, a kind of remarkably um, inspiring, at times challenging kind of period to be um, working in this in this field. Because, I mean, when you think about it, that the, the idea, the concept of the nation state, what government was supposed to be for, etc. These were pretty, pretty sort of set entities. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of um, watching the news somewhat despair of government uh, certainly in different places uh, but actually I think both of your um, stories and some of the other things that we've been talking about are, are if you like the less newsworthy uh, examples of some of these changes and shifts happening 
Um, and I think it's 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 tremendously exciting to be um, in a way kind of working in this field when when the when the sector is so much in in flux. So so one of the questions I I, I like to um, end the uh, the show on is to um, ask each of you, um, you know, we've been talking about work and how it happens and, and, and what you do. So what, what's, a, what's a perfect working day for you, Arno? Yeah, a perfect working day is one day that doesn't um, look like the, uh, the previous one. It doesn't look like the, the next one. Uh, you know, we always try to um, collaborate with several stakeholders and institutions, uh, whether they are, they are the ministries, but also some initiatives like Startup Estonia, Work in Estonia, etc. And it's always very important to get uh, diversity of, um, of feedback, diversity of, uh, of initiatives. Uh, you know, e-residency program has been launched from a... Uh, hackathon actually uh, involving per, the public sector and the civil servants so we need uh, so a very good day for me is when I can find this kind of uh, original projects or initiatives that are going to uh, feed me and feed my team uh, of new ideas uh, radical ones and ambitious ones and then the good end of the day is uh, finally when I can uh, uh, enjoy a glass of wine and disconnect from any uh, any device because it's also important to uh, separate and uh, not to be always connected, and I think it's extremely, extremely important. That's 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 great. And 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 how about you, Robin? What's what's a perfect working day for you? A uh, few criteria. Uh, one is um, to learn something. I I feel if you've got to the end of the day and haven't uh, learned something, particularly in a startup environment, you you're doing something wrong. Um, the other is to be able to make decisions rapidly. I um, often evaluate myself by how quickly we, our throughput of decisions is because otherwise that becomes baggage. To end the day having managed um, energy more than time, that's the, uh, the framework through, it, through which I look at managing my days increasingly. Uh, I think if you look through the lens of time, um, you miss all sorts of opportunities. Great. Very inspiring. And thank you for, for sharing that. So, well, thank you so much to both of you for for um, really kind of exploring a field that um, I'm not as familiar with as, as either of you, but very, very fascinated by. So thank you so much, Arno, for coming on the show today. And, and, and thank you so much to you, Robin. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group. DWG is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. Thank you for listening to Digital Workplace Impact and look forward to next time.